This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, September 19th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. This week, the city of Louisville, Kentucky, agreed to settle civil claims with the family of Breonna Taylor for, among other things, $12 million. It's an outcome that should demand a shift in policing and maybe, just maybe, prevent the kind of misconduct that would lead to such massive payouts. Alessandra Biaggi is a Democratic state senator in New York. Her idea is to make police carry their own liability insurance, the way so many other professionals are legally required to do. What has stymied police reform, in your view? The strong power of police unions and the lack of political courage to do the right thing because of that power, to be honest. I think that this is not something that's just happening in the state of New York. I think it's happening across the entire country. But it's a, it seems to be especially true in New York State and, and New York City, where the heads of the police unions and the police unions generally have actually just amassed more and more power over the years. And elected officials in power are, are afraid of them and really don't want to make them angry or make them upset or do anything, I believe, that would take away the the support of the police union for that specific elected official. Obviously, the tides have shifted significantly, meaning that I think that there's more space for anybody who would have maybe felt uncomfortable. But here's the thing. There's a lot of powerful interests in government and in politics. And I think that the moment we're in and, and the moment that we're leading into is one where doesn't matter how powerful the group of people or the organization that you're fighting against is. It's about doing the right thing, the ethical thing, the moral thing, regardless of whether you lose your seat. And we could talk more about that, but I, that is what I have seen to be really like the, the cancer of politics. What is the relationship between people's sense of public safety. You represent the Bronx and Westchester. Uh, What is the sense that of people's, of the relationship between safety and how much policing costs them? It's a really good question. Um, I think it's shifting, but I will say it, it, it does depend which neighborhood you ask. I think that If I look at the district I represent, which is District 34, which covers, as you mentioned, parts of Westchester County and the Bronx, although in Westchester, it's a very small portion. It's just Pelham and Mount Vernon. Um, And then in the Bronx, it's a massive uh, district from Riverdale in the northwest all the way down to Hunts Point, including Rikers Island. Um, And you do see a difference of how police officers are policing and their presence depending upon what area of the Bronx and Westchester you're in. in I'll just give a very um, stark example. In Pelham, there are very few police officers driving around the street on a regular basis. In fact, you probably will see one maybe once every five days. I mean, I rarely see a police officer or a car. Um, if I am in the Southeast Bronx, like Soundview or Castle Hill area, I mean, you really cannot go one block or two or three without seeing um, a police car. Now, to answer your question, how does it relate to how people's understanding or feeling of safety? Uh, I think, again, it depends. I know and and we know that there is a direct correlation between um, 
heavy police presence and and also uh, violence. Um, of course, we know as well that uh, violence is not just about over policing; it's also about underinvesting in communities and not thinking about how we deal with and address issues like poverty um, and systemic racism. And so there's much more going on there. But I do think that um, overall, a majority of the people that I represent um, have made it very clear in their communications with me and my office and my team um, that they don't want over-policing. They don't want um, a police officer at every corner or at every block or responding to a mental health crisis, right? I mean, there's a very clear correlation, um, especially between our communities of color and their feeling of really no place is safe for them, especially when police are present. Um, and as and also, I think the very real fact that when um, a person of color is feeling unsafe or feeling like there's an issue going on around them or or something that they might need help with de-escalating, the first thought is not to call 911 because that's actually something that will create more of a problem or more violence or lead to someone dying. And so that I think is really at the crux of the issue. And I I am keenly aware of it. Um, and that is really honestly why, just to draw the through line here, why I am a strong proponent of defunding the police um, and and taking resources away from the NYPD that should be going into things like mental health services and social services and other ways in which we can actually get at the crux of a lot of the issues that our communities are facing. Your proposal would do what exactly? Okay, so this is what we're calling or what I'm calling the police liability insurance bill. And the bill has two key elements to it. The first is that it removes police officers from indemnity provisions in our state law that hold an officer harmless, which basically holding a harmless is just a legal term for no responsibility, no accountability um, in in any legal judgment um, that's filed in a state or federal court. And then the second component of it is that it would require all officers to hold personal liability insurance. And so right now, police officers are essentially shielded from personal financial responsibility when they are sued in a state or federal court um, because of indemnity provisions in our state law. So they are shielded from personal responsibility because of indemnity provisions that provide them this protection. And so this bill will remove officers from those provisions of our state law so that these officers will be responsible for paying out any settlement or judgment, right? In order to recover those costs, um, the legislation requires every single officer, including state and local law enforcement, to have personal liability insurance to cover any claims that are made against them for acts or omissions that occur during any period of time that the officer is in the performance of their duties within the scope of employment. Um, municipal or state entities that employ them will also be required to cover the base rate of the policy. Um, but the whole point of this is that officers who repeatedly engage in misconduct are the ones who may see their rates go up, right, until it becomes cost prohibitive, forcing officers hopefully, to change their behaviors or to just leave the field of law enforcement altogether, right? Because 
when you make something cost prohibitive, that is a deterrent hopefully, for the behavior that we're seeing. And so the idea is really to create this financial disincentive so that police misconduct no longer happens because even though we are putting in place and passing more laws now probably than ever in the state of New York to increase accountability and transparency for police misconduct, we're not we're not close to coming to a place where we've completely transformed the profession. Let's talk about the relationship between the cost of policing and the benefits of policing Mm -hmm. here, because I think that your proposal speaks to that pretty clearly. I can imagine Mm -hmm. that a local mayor or a local city council might look at your proposal and think, boy, this could really save us a lot of money. Sure. In terms of police misconduct payouts, like yes. obviously, I can imagine police unions and some individual departments saying, "No, this is terrible." Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to payouts that cities must engage in when someone, when a police officer engages in misconduct and is held responsible for that misconduct, that doesn't necessarily come out of a police budget. That's exactly right. So just to put this into perspective in terms of the numbers, okay, every single year, cities across the entire state of New York use and and spend hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars to cover claims of misconduct that are made against police officers. And so those claims include things like excessive use of force or the violation of a New Yorker's civil rights. Um, And again, this is taxpayer dollars used to cover claims of those specific types of misconduct and others. Um, Between July 2017 and July and June of 2018, the New York City um, Comptroller actually put out a report that New York City alone, right? This is one city amongst many in the state of New York. New York City paid out $230 million in roughly 6,500 cases of police misconduct. That I I pause there because that number is staggering and it's especially staggering right now when we are seeing uh, an incredible deficit in our budget in the state of New York and we're watching as things like uh, school budgets get cut, um, social services are getting cut, transportation which is a social justice issue as well um, is getting cut. And so while you know you have taxpayers bailing out, essentially, law enforcement who are engaging in misconduct, um, those officers, in in addition to being bailed out, are also evading any kind of meaningful accountability. And so the repeal of the indemnity provision in the state law that holds these these law enforcement officers harmless um, in any lawsuits against them and requires, um, and, and now will require them to carry personal liability insurance, at least provides um, a layer of financial consequence that will, that they will feel more, in, more directly. And we know that anytime that you want to change behavior, one of the ways you, of course, can do that is by um, affecting someone's financial consequences and and really hitting them in the pocket. And, you know, one of the things that I heard from the police union in the very beginning of when I had introduced this bill was that 
I wanted to actually eliminate police officers, which can kind of signal to you something quite interesting if you really think about it, which is if we're requiring officers to carry personal liability insurance, why would that be my intention to want to eliminate police, right? One logical conclusion could be that um, perhaps that's uh, a telling sign that there are so many police officers engaging in misconduct that perhaps there wouldn't be anyone who would be covered by personal liability insurance, but we won't go to that point. The point I really want to make is that this this specific issue is actually not a new one. Um, There are many nurses and hairdressers, barbers, um, lawyers, and doctors who hold some form of personal liability insurance. And so what this is really about at the end of the day is holding these officers to the highest standards of integrity, um, especially because they are responsible for the protection of lives. That is the oath that they take when they become officers. And so a violation of that oath should hold concrete consequences. And this is, this is again, only one of the ways that we can continue to hold them accountable. But the fact that I would go to get my hair cut and my hairdresser would have insurance and that the police officer carrying a gun wouldn't have, have to hold personal liability insurance is a very disturbing thought to hold in our minds. And it's quite discordant, but it again shows us, I think, um, just how powerful, again, the unions have been in shielding the officers from meaningful accountability. I can actually imagine that if if a law like this were on the books, that police unions might find at some point, you know, this isn't so bad. I believe that. I think that a reasonable person could probably lead to that conclusion. And when I have been doing outreach to whether it's advocacy groups, insurance companies, the Colorado representatives who have been doing this work as well, um, what we're seeing is that once the actual issue is explained and a meaningful conversation happens around the issue, not one where it's conversation through a tweet or through um, a, a, a news clip that really does more harm than um, does any type of, of healing, which is really what we need in this specific area at the moment. What we're seeing is that there is an understanding that and, and a real agreement that police commissioners and and police captains and unions do want the very best to wear a police badge and do reject the officers who are really unwilling to accept their responsibility and accountability for the protection of human life. I also think that that extends to even someone, perhaps an elected official, who historically has been unapologetic about police misconduct um, and is on a certain side of the aisle. And we see this, by the way, I don't want to just single out Republicans. We do see this kind of uh, lack of accountability for police and law enforcement um, who have engaged in misconduct on both sides of the aisle. We see elected officials protect that behavior, um, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. And that's why this is such a uh, massive problem. Um, But I think ultimately, when we do have these meaningful conversations, what it is proving and and reiterating and reminding everybody is that being a police officer is not a right. It is a privilege. And so if you abuse that privilege, just like if you abuse the privilege of having a driver's license, 
you no longer get to drive a car. You are abusing the privilege of being a police officer. Although in a very philosophical sense, I could agree that we could argue um, about the term privilege and, and its application to policing, but that's another conversation I think for a different day. But I want to just be very candid about that. Um, if you abuse that privilege, then you should no longer be a police officer, right? So, I mean, there's more we can say about that, but I think that to your point, reasonable people who are actually thinking about what this bill is doing and what this issue is all about and the history of policing and truly actually are coming to this conversation committed to an understanding will conclude that it's actually not such a not such an off the wall idea. It's actually quite reasonable. Polling conducted by the Cato Institute, uh, Emily Eakins runs uh, polling for the Cato Institute, found that Republicans as a group believe that 10 percent of police officers engage in misconduct. And, you know, when you hear that that is what Republicans believe, we can take that just for the sake of conversation, say that that let's say that number is accurate. That should be viewed as an emergency. Yes. within law enforcement. And I can imagine that for the 90% mm-hmm. of law enforcement officers uh, who do not engage in misconduct, mm-hmm. getting rid of that 10% would really improve their standing in the community. Yes, it certainly would. And I let me just say that 10% is outrageous. 1%, by the way, is outrageous because of the nature of the job. Just like 1% of lawmakers who are corrupt, outrageous. One, one corrupt lawmaker, one corrupt po- police officer. We should be outraged by even one person abusing that power, right? That is, I think, somehow along the way where we've like lost our way when it comes to this issue. But I agree. And I have had conversations with law enforcement officers um, about this issue. And, you know, when I'm, when you talk about this with officers who do hold themselves to a high level of integrity, there is an absolute um, acknowledgement that police misconduct is outrageous, it's egregious. But here's the here's the part of it, actually, that is so deeply embedded into the culture of policing. And by the way, deeply embedded into our culture, despite the fact that we are becoming um, more willing as a society to hold accountable bad behavior of all kinds. Um, there is still a culture that is so part and parcel of being a police officer that is one where you don't quote unquote want to rat out right the other officer or tell on them or be that person who complained about the officer who is actually be- behaving in misconduct and that that part of the culture is just as important to break and to dismantle as holding accountable the officers who are engaging in misconduct, because when you start to have a, an unwillingness to accept that within the confines of policing on a large scale, I think that that is when, um, we will really see a big change because again, and I always say this whenever I pass a policy or, or change a law or think about changing a law, 
we can change as many laws as we want, but changing a law does not necessarily mean changing the culture. And changing a culture does not necessarily change a law. These things have to happen at the same time. And there has to be an internal willingness. And the way that I can understand it is, is just that in the legislature, in Albany, misconduct or corruption, and, and that's a very vague term, but I'll give you an, an example. The lack of accountability for male lawmakers to be told that you cannot sexually harass people or sexually abuse or assault people until recently uh, has led to a culture in Albany where there have been women who have been sexually harassed by a large amount of numbers, women who have been raped. And I will say, despite changing the law last year, which I was a, a big part of, it doesn't actually fully change the culture. In fact, there are still people who engage in that kind of behavior. And when that when there is an awareness or an acknowledgement internally of that person's behavior, there is an unwillingness at some of the highest levels of our government to hold accountable those legislators. And so this takes time. Unfortunately, I have I don't have patience, so it's hard for someone like myself to to not want it to happen like instantly in this with the snap of a finger but I do understand that serious progress that will be lasting does take time and so it's important to just make sure that we understand that the culture of policing is just as important to dismantle and transform as changing the laws and that's going to mean um that there's going to have to be some type of collective understanding that if someone comes forward to report another officer's misconduct, that there will not be retaliation against that officer for making that claim or assertion. Alessandra Biaggi is a Democratic state senator in New York. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.